Hey everyone, before we begin today's show, just a quick reminder that Michael and Us has a lot more content available at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We post an extra episode there every week along with bonus content, including though not limited to interviews that I do in my day job, a recent highlight being my conversation with the author and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, with whom I discussed Bill Gates. Recent Patreon episodes include an episode on Operation Coffee Cup and the LP once recorded by Ronald Reagan attacking socialized medicine, and a crossover episode with the Real Politic podcast in which we discuss the Bruce Springsteen Barack Obama collab Renegades, a podcast I hear is almost as popular as ours. You'll also get access to our full archive of well over a hundred past episodes. So if you enjoy the free shows and want to hear more, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Michael and us. We're very grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin Radio, so please don't miss other great podcasts on the Jacobin Network, like the recently launched Primer, a labor podcast about Amazon hosted by my colleague Alex Press. Now without further ado, on with this week's free episode of Michael and Us. Gotta say, I'm feeling a little self-conscious because I I cut my hair one more time because barber shops still aren't open here, or maybe they maybe they're opening very soon. I don't know, and I don't I don't think it turned out too well. I don't know. I think you look as handsome as Matt Gates. <laughs> I bet you say that to all the boys. <laughs> well, everyone, welcome back to Michael and Us. As always, I'm Luke Savage, and with me is Will Sloan. Thank you very much. So a few things I want to talk about off the top. I watched a movie last night, uh, actually kind of uh, thinking I was doing field research, perhaps watching a documentary that we could do on a future episode. I don't think I'd like to do this one. Um, it's called Agents of Chaos by uh, a great filmmaker, one we've talked about a few times on the show, Alex Gibney. Are you familiar with this one? No, not this one. So uh, Agents of Chaos is basically like a Russiagate documentary, but not only is it a Russiagate documentary, it's one that came out in September of 2020. So it aired on HBO, I don't know, you know, eight or nine weeks before the presidential election. But it was giving me flashbacks because it has all the vibes of like peak 2017 kind of Russia uh, alarmism. I only watched part one. It's a it's a four hour documentary. Okay. And I watched part one, but which, you know, is about is about two hours. And I swear to God, like over half of it, I mean, maybe three quarters was about the scourge of Russian bots or uh, troll farms, I guess they call it in the movie. And so, you know, this is stuff like they're looking into, you know, some kind of Russia based, you know, Moscow based uh, firm that has ties to some oligarch that has ties to Putin or something. And like, no matter how much they kind of try to mystify what this company does, I mean, it's just it's just people that are hired to post memes and like a lot of them aren't even political and like they just literally look like any I mean, it's like they're spam, basically, like, you know, and, and you know, some of it is like was they got quite creative, you know, they would create these pages that were sort of ostensibly like homegrown right wing pages or something like that, which like thousands of people would share the memes or or whatever. But I kept waiting for the film, you know, because it is by Alex Gibney, who is somebody I, I like and respect. I'm, I'm very fond of a lot of his work. He's a good liberal filmmaker. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, you know, to be fair, you know, he's made some he's made some uh, stuff around kind of like corporate power and stuff and corrupt. Have you seen his Enron documentary? It's quite 
It's quite yeah, good. Yeah, enjoyed the Enron one. Uh, we talked on a previous episode about the series Dirty Money, and he directed a pretty mm-hmm. good episode of that about this ridiculous Volkswagen scandal where they were uh, they were creating clean cars that, in fact, were not clean at all. But I kept waiting for him to provide, you know, some kind of countervailing, you know, narrative or something. And apart from, like, the odd clip of, like, there's, like, one, one thing where there's, like, a 15-second clip of Glenn Greenwald or something talking about how there's no evidence for, you know, I can't remember what it was. Um, But, you know, besides that, it's like most of the talking heads are literally U.S. security and intelligence officials and like John Podesta and people like Mm -hmm. that. And yeah, the level of mystification that's going on around these like, like, they're just describing posting. Like they have like a cybersecurity expert and like she keeps talking about all this like really sinister stuff that's happening and they're still just describing posting. And it's like, you see these (laughs) memes and it's like, you know, you remember these. It's like a picture of like a muscly Bernie Sanders or something. Oh, of course. And you know, there's one there's one thing where they're talking about like all the memes that got posted in Michigan and you know, a state which uh, which Donald Trump narrowly won. And uh, yeah, nowhere, of course, is it mentioned at all that you know, it's often said uh, Hillary Clinton didn't visit Michigan. I looked into this once. That's not in fact true. She did visit Michigan once during the campaign and she gave a speech about how uh, you never hear enough these days about unlocking the power of the private sector to create jobs. And would you believe that in a state where, uh, you know, the central industry has collapsed and the biggest city has gone from being one of the most prosperous to the poorest city in America or one of the most one of the poorest in the span of a few decades, would you believe that message uh, didn't resonate? From what I can tell, she didn't visit a single UAW hall, which, you know, would have been a no-brainer after, uh, you know, the you know, arguably the single biggest kind of domestic achievement of the Obama administration was bailing out the auto industry. Could have tried to own that, but nope. Anyway, um, documentary doesn't get into that, but it does get into a lot of stuff about memes uh, being posted by by teenagers on the other side of the world. Well, in fairness, middle-aged and older people are very vulnerable to memes. Uh, if if your parents have ever shown you their Facebook newsfeed, you'll see that. So, uh, well, okay. So one, one of my biggest problems with this stuff is that, like, I don't believe that people passively absorb, like, information that's in front of them. And I feel like in these conversations, there's too much of an implication a lot of the time that that's what's happening. I mean, of course, like, people do share, like, completely crazy and, like, fact-free stuff on Facebook. But I'm not convinced that this kind of thing, you know, so-called cyber warfare, which again, just describes like meme posting by any other name. You don't think that it radically transforms people's politics seemingly overnight? No, yeah, yeah, I I, I don't. I mean, I think the kinds of things you see in this documentary, all it's doing is just like, well, mostly what it seems to be doing is like preaching to the converted. Like if somebody is on Facebook and they're sharing like, you know, MAGA memes or something, and then they see one and it happens to, you, you know, happen to be able to link it back to a Russian IP address or something I don't really see what the difference is I mean the other thing is like the amounts of money that they were talking about I don't think the film at least not what I what I saw didn't have a holistic figure and I haven't seen one that's like what is the kind of estimate for how much I mean the the, the main thing that's being studied is the so-called internet research agency you know and I, I saw you know two million dollars or numbers kind of in that vicinity perhaps if somebody knows they could shoot me a message and, and tell me what the estimate is for what these sinister troll farms spent but it's like assuming we're talking about a few million dollars it's like both presidential campaigns would have been blowing that out of the water on just social media spending alone I mean, a few million dollars in a U.S. presidential election is like the equivalent of like, I don't know, a weekend ad buy in like North Carolina on TV or something. I mean, or radio spot. I mean, it's nothing. It's just an absolute drop in the bucket. 
But I have to say that one thing that particularly frustrated me about this film and all the stuff around memes is that I actually have encountered this attitude in some of my past political work where, you know, I've talked to like pretty experienced political operatives, people that I worked with, who really are convinced that these pages that basically post memes are doing some kind of like sorcery or magic and that we need to like spend lots of time investigating them or or whatever. And we're trying to make the case uh, at various points to various people in the past. It's like, there's nothing to investigate here. If you give a bunch of like political opera, I mean, so in Canada, right, there's this thing, uh, Ontario Proud. You've probably seen it. Most people listening haven't heard of this, but you know, there's been a lot of like alarmism about this page called Ontario Proud. And basically the page, you know, like any page like this, I mean, it's like, it posts like these like wholesome sort of like meanwhile in Canada memes, you know, or just like, you know, clickbait for a certain kind of Facebook user. Where it'll, it'll be like a picture of like Niagara Falls. And it's like, you know, share if you've been to Niagara Falls or something. And it claims to be nonpartisan. It claims to be not affiliated with any party. Yeah. And it obviously leans conservative. One of the guys behind it used to work in, you know, in comms for Stephen Harper's office or whatever. Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's an astroturfed uh, thing. And like these kind of memes that they use to build an audience once in a while, the drop something in about like share if you're sick of like the liberals uh auctioning off our future with their deficits or you know whatever the thing is and yeah like i felt there's been a lot of mystification around stuff like this even in the press um the way it's talked about it's as if there's something more going on here than just pretty conventional political communications and and like i mean it is just like a form of political advertising basically you know, I guess it's qualitatively different if you can tie it to a foreign government or something like that. But I still don't think it it was anything like as consequential in 2016 as this film I watched last night made it out. Uh, of course, of course, like every movie like this, uh, one of the talking heads is Timothy Snyder, who goes off with these pretty generic insights about like tyranny and authoritarianism and stuff. I know we're only a few months into the Biden era, but it really was a flashback to like 2017, 2018 and, and that culture. And I, for one, would like to thank Joe Biden for, well, I was going to say putting a stop to it for kind of like reducing it by about 30% for like a few months. And it's going to all come roaring back ahead of the midterms, I assume. There you go. You hear that, folks? Luke is eating crow. He has put his words (laughs) on a plate and he has eaten them. Speaking of not great films by good filmmakers that we like, I do think we'd be remiss um, not to say, uh, you know, RIP to a real one. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld has gone to that uh, great, uh, that great known unknown in the sky. Um, (laughs) And uh, I had to look back, uh, back to find the episode, but it was all the way back in episode 71 that we dealt with uh, the Errol Morris documentary, whose name I'm now forgetting. Was it? It was called The Unknown Known. The Unknown Known. That was the movie that uh, watching it made me wonder if Errol Morris really was all he's cracked up to be. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Jury's, jury's still out on that, perhaps. Well, because it's right. like it's basically the fog of war if the fog of war was not interesting at all. And it's well, like... Well, he just, he just lucked out with the fog of war that he had a subject that was, you know, a pretty good talker and a relative reflective man and then he tried to do that exact same format on like 10 things afterwards and it just fucking failed every time <laughs> the, 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 the thing in the Rumsfeld movie where all the interview segments are interspersed with all those like scenes of like memos flopping about Morris always makes his documentaries these days really fancy with like the Danny Elfman musical score and the pretentious images of the Lincoln statue or whatever when when did that movie come out again I think Obama his second term i want to say like 2015 it's, it's funny because it feels like such a kind of mid-2000s like it, it feels like a product of that era 
era, sort of after the after the like initial jingoism around the war on terror in Iraq had kind of dissipated, you know, after the Democrats retook the House in the 2006 midterms, when there started to be like sort of the mainstreaming of like friendly criticism around the Bush era, where it was like where, where the level of criticism in the mainstream that was permissible was like, oh, these people were were too idealistic about what they thought they could achieve, or, or like they were misled by you know bad intelligence or or whatever. It feels like it feels like a product of that era because it's I think endeavoring to depict Rumsfeld as a flawed figure, but it's still trying to depict him as like this guy was a workaholic. He was trying to be a big thinker about geopolitics and he was a public servant and whatever else you might think of him, you know, yada, 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 you know, the kind of stuff that's now appearing in obituaries of Rumsfeld. What it wanted to do was to get Rumsfeld to admit some sort of wrongdoing and then people could could feel better about him in a way like one of the appeals of the fog of war actually is that people walked away from it thinking you know at least that McNamara feels a little bit bad about it you know he's he's really not that bad a guy and a criticism you can lob at the fog of war is even though it is I guess a critical film about America's intervention in Vietnam you can leave it feeling better about America because, well, at least this fairly smart and thoughtful man is still wrestling with (laughs) with his mistakes many years later. The Donald Rumsfeld movie refuses that catharsis. And I mean, the the nicest possible spin you could give the Donald Rumsfeld movie is that it it really exposes the banality of evil because it's just, you know, 90 minutes or two hours of Rumsfeld talking and being this impenetrable wall that no self-reflection will get through. But I mean, there's an awful lot of time to spend with Donald Rumsfeld. I actually thought about the unknown known when we were watching the movie for this episode because I thought, well, why why am I enjoying this movie a little bit more than I enjoyed The Unknown Known? And I think it's just because like more stuff happens in the movie we watched for this episode. We get to see more different kinds of asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so before we get to the movie, I did have uh, I did have one more thing I wanted to share off the top here. I'm grateful to uh, uh, forgive me. I'm forgetting the name. Whoever uh, sent me this, but this was a uh, piece from uh, Media Matters back in 2000. And six. Um, By the way, whenever I hear Media Matters, the first thing I think of is a de- TV debate between Bill O'Reilly and Paul Krugman from like the mid 2000s, <laughs> where Paul Krugman quotes something that Bill O'Reilly says to him. And O'Reilly was like, uh, listen, I, I know you don't listen to the factor. So so wh- where did you get that quote? I'm just curious. And Krugman goes, Media Matters. And Bill O'Reilly goes, Media Matters? You think they didn't take that out of context? Do your own research, Krugman. <laughs> Anyway, that's what I think of every single time. Well, I know what I'm going to be watching later tonight over dinner. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so this is a Media Matters post uh, that someone sent me from 2006. It's basically a roundup. It's called Mission Accomplished, to look back at the media's fawning coverage of Bush's premature declaration of victory in Iraq. And I was thinking about this uh, partly because of Rumsfeld, but also because I've re- been revisiting season one of the Blowback podcast, which of course dealt with the Iraq war and kind of lead up to it. And, you know, there's some obviously some great uh, some great clips of Donald Rumsfeld in that. Another reason I was thinking about this is because it features uh, prominently the, uh, I suppose, uh, disgraced former media personality. Maybe disgraced is too strongly a word. I'm sure he's still doing pretty well. Uh, Chris Matthews, uh, who I once wrote an essay about that I that I was just uh, revisiting. But Matthews is quoted uh, pretty copiously here. 
He began a segment of his show Hardball by asking the guests, who I guess were Ann Coulter and uh, Pat Cadell, who is a Democrat in quotation marks, what's the importance of the president's amazing display of leadership tonight? Uh, He goes on to say, I mean, I mean, this is crazy. They're, t- they're talking about, the obviously, the, the stunt where Bush landed on the aircraft carrier. And Matthews here is asking him about it. He says, what do you make of the actual visual that people will see on TV? And probably, as you know, as, as well as I, will remember a lot longer than words spoken tonight. And that's the president looking very much like a jet, you know, a high-flying jet star, a guy who is a jet pilot, has been in the past when he was younger, obviously. What does that image mean to the American people? A guy who can actually get into a supersonic plane and actually fly in an unpressurized cabin like an actual jet pilot. So, I mean, there's probably like a dozen more Matthews quotes in exactly the same vein. Uh, you know, he goes on to he goes on to ask. Does, it, does he talk about George W. Bush's package on that day? Do you remember that? It's funny. It's funny. You should ask. He, <laughs> he, he's, he's, a few minutes later in the segment, he turns to one of the guests and he says, let me ask you, you were a congressman all those years. Here's a president who's really nonverbal. He's like Eisenhower. He looks great in a military uniform. He looks great in that cowboy costume he wears when he goes west. I remember him standing at that fence with Colin Powell. Was that the best picture of the 2000 campaign? He then turns to Ann Coulter and he says, Ann, you're the first to speak tonight on The Buzz. The president's performance tonight, redolent of the best of Reagan, what do you think? And then Coulter just said, it's stunning. It's amazing. I think it's huge. I mean, he's landing on a boat at 150 miles an hour. It's tremendous. Anyway, it goes on and on. And I mean, I could spend the entire episode. This is a very long post. I could spend the entire episode just reading some of these deranged things that various media personalities said after this stunt. I'm having trouble spotting the lie. In any of this. <laughs> I mean, I feel like... Uh, I've been a critic, you know, of the sort of Trump exceptionalism, like, you know, because of the figure of Trump himself, that there was something, you know, exceptional about it. And I have to say, this kind of thing just reinforces the point. You go back to like the years after, you know, immediately after 9-11, the kind of early jingoism of the war on terror and the, uh, inv- the invasion of Iraq. And it's like, this is what you would have seen if you turned on cable news. Just this like fawning, you know, state propaganda and kind of personality politics after George Bush literally landed on an aircraft carrier in a fighter jet. I mean, come on. I feel like younger people today don't remember this stuff and they need to be taught about it. Any outlaw regime that has ties to terrorist groups and seeks or possesses weapons of mass destruction is a grave danger to the civilized world and will be confronted. Well, we're recording this the day after Canada Day, which is uh, when our country gets together to celebrate, um, you know, our country. Blast off some fireworks, listen to some uh, Backman-Turner Overdrive or whatever. Um, It's more like, it's like usually Nickelback at the rare Canada Day thing I've been to. And Canada Day was a pretty somber occasion in the country this year because of you know, what we talked about on a couple of recent episodes, the renewed discourse around the Indian residential school system, the discovery of mass graves or unmarked graves. Many official celebrations were canceled. A lot of the discourse around Canada Day was focused on this particular Canada Day should be a time of somber reflection. And, you know, I was thinking yesterday while I was at home, not looking at any fireworks, about how I don't feel any particular loyalty to Canada or any particular love of Canada. 
which is not to say that I don't like living here. I think it's perfectly fine to live here. But whenever a day like Canada Day or the 4th of July comes around and there's backlash to it and there's a backlash to the backlash where people say, well, if you, uh, if you don't love this country, you shouldn't be here or, or whatever. Yeah, would, like, would, would, would our American listeners believe that the sort of conservative party line on this is uh, that the left is trying to cancel, can- they're trying to do cancel culture to Canada Day? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about this now because you're talking about the war in Iraq era. And we used to talk about this a long time ago on the podcast, how basically you had like five or six celebrities who you knew were the anti-war celebrities. Your Sean Penns, your Susan Sarandons, patron saint of the podcast, Michael Moore. <laughs> and people would talk about them as being anti-American. That was the phrase that they used. And they would say this as if these celebrities were were trying to hoodwink you. They were trying to like trick you into thinking that actually they were for America. But really, the ultimate agenda hidden underneath was that they were an opponent. They were against it. They literally they literally did not like America. And and you, they were <laughs> they were anti. <laughs> Sorry, and, I did I didn't quite follow that. You're saying that like there's some people are for America, but then others they're they're against it. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people <laughs> they're against it, but they say they're for it. Exactly, exactly. A lot of people, a lot of people say we're just criticizing the country. We love America. Don't get us wrong. But what if those people are lying when they say they love America? What if they actually hate America? <laughs> and this was a, an actually very common thing that you would hear in the early to mid 2000s, particularly in relation to Michael Moore. A lot of his critics on the right would say, well, he sh- certainly doesn't sound like he likes America, it, like it, it, very witch well, hunt su- kind su- of language. Su- summed up uh, perhaps best in the in the masterful film, uh, which we <laughs> which we revisited uh, long, I think, before episode 71, uh, the, the aptly titled Michael Moore Hates America. Well, you remember in that movie, the delightful host of it would like go around and he would ask people, he would ask like Albert Mazels or Penn Jillette or whoever he'd roped into being in front of the camera like do you do you think michael moore hates america and they would pause and they would you know think about it and give an answer or whatever (laughs) which is just such a funny question because i think of my own relationship to canada and i think it's it's not about love it's not about hate it's not about like it's not about dislike it's this is this is a place where i live and i was born here and it's basically my only option right now gotta live here uh so it would be nice if it would function I, i feel about canada the way i feel about an apartment And so I honestly think that any kind of patriotism, any kind of nationalism, uh, but but let's say patriotism, because patriotism is is the word that doesn't have those kind of negative connotations to it. I think patriotism is kind of silly. Like a country is is a neutral thing. It's a dumb thing. What you're saying is you can't identify with the idea of relating to a country on a symbolic level like you 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 relate to it on a kind of much more like functional and like institutional material level, level. Right, yeah right. yeah i i suppose so i suppose so now how do you feel about that do you feel differently do you feel a certain allegiance to canada at a more symbolic level allegiance is probably the wrong word i mean if we're just if we're talking about canada day i mean like the idea of turning canada day into a culture war issue from the right is so funny to me because like i mean it's like i've been to the odd canada day celebration and it's like I don't think Canada Day has enough symbolic power like it's literally just a day off like trying to invest it with this like deep symbolic power 
uh, from the right just doesn't really seem to um, make any sense to me. Although, of course, I understand the, the criticisms of it coming from the other side. I mean, I don't know, the, qu- the question of like nationalism and patriotism and stuff like that, national identity, I mean, in, if, in the context of Canada, is like unbelievably complex. And it's something I'd actually like to do whole episodes on uh, later. There's a documentary about the 1995 referendum in Quebec, which came within about 50,000 votes of breaking up the national, you know, the nation state entity uh, known as Canada. And I think there are, you know, I don't know, questions of identity, particularly in the 21st century, like national civic identity and, you know, in settler societies, especially very, very complicated. In Canada, you have the added complication that I mean, they they literally did use the word nationalism at the time back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, nationalism was big on the Canadian left. You know, it was all about like resisting continentalism, which was, you know, the dominance of the American empire, particularly the economic dominance and control of Canada's natural resources and things like that. So on a kind of more abstract and like philosophical level, I guess, I don't really have a straightforward answer. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like, do I mean, do I feel offended or upset, you know, when people who are rightly angry about residential schools and things like that criticize Canada Day or like tear down a statue of Queen Victoria or something? Uh, No, I don't. More power to them. Why are there statues of Queen Victoria? Okay, I don't know how this fits into what I was saying before. Maybe it doesn't. But I'll just tell you that I've been feeling especially resentful of Canada's aesthetic lately. Yesterday, the Google Doodle was a picture of a beaver holding a Canadian flag. And, you know, it was a Canada Day Google. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a group of seven work, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Tom Thompson did it after his death. Uh, Seeing it offended me, I think, because, you know, as we're talking about this horrific genocide that was perpetrated on our indigenous populations, we're still forced to look at these stupid twee images of like beavers and canoes and stupid corny bullshit so much of canada's identity is uh okay the the canadian identity the canadian aesthetic if it is personified in five gentlemen is the bare naked ladies you know (laughs) this stupid novelty (laughs) yeah stupid novelty quasi ironic (laughs) but not really pop band who were foisted upon the world and especially upon canada as like this is canada's pop band but also like not really not really because canada's canada's lame canada's stupid we can't have a real pop band we have to have like basically a glorified weird al yankovic right an an ironic one that's actually like so ironic that it's just earnest yeah yeah, although will will i i see your bare naked ladies and i will raise you moxie fruvis well, okay, I didn't bring up Moxie Fruvis because I felt, I, well, I should have brought up Moxie Fruvis. I thought that Moxie Fruvis carried just too much baggage at this point to, to drop in. But Moxie Fruvis is, is Canada because it's this incredibly corny, incredibly like twee, stupid, <laughs> smug, self-satisfied band. Like that awful song that they did, My Baby Loves a Bunch of Authors. Yeah, we'll, we'll, dro- we'll drop that in. Oh, God. Just a band that's all about Oh, I don't even want to talk about them. They're so fucking awful. <laughs> they're they're the bare naked ladies, but with a s- extra element of like granola bar pseudo progressive <laughs> politics. And that turns out one of them's a sexual predator. Yeah. Cuddle up with William S. Burroughs. Leave on the light for bell hooks. 
I've been flirting with Pierre Burton Cause he's so smart in his books I like to go out dancing My baby loves a bunch of authors My heart's so broken, bleeding Baby's just sitting there Doing some reading Mr. President I think we won the day, sir. I didn't run as someone to unify Washington. I ran to change Washington. I had really started to think about a Donald Trump presidency. He could bring the fight to a town that badly needed it. You know, when I first heard that term, I hated it. I said, oh, that's so hokey. If people are going to drain the swamp, like the president wants to do, they need better information about how this place is broken. And that's my mission in Congress. Well, our movie on this episode is called The Swamp. It's a 2020 HBO documentary directed by Daniel DeMauro and Morgan Pem. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. They are the duo who made Get Me Roger Stone, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And this documentary is about three Republican politicians, all House representatives, who are avid champions of then-President Trump's stated goal of draining the swamp in Washington. They are Thomas Massey of Kentucky, Ken Buck of Colorado, and the, I think, indisputable star of the film, the truly unpleasant Matt (laughs) Gates of Florida. And also in a prominent supporting role is Democrat from California, Ro Khanna, who seeks to build bipartisan legislation with Gates. This is a movie that's not entirely dissimilar to the genre of documentary we like to call the politics what a concept movie, but it's better than those usual types of movies. Uh, First of all, it's a better piece of filmmaking than your typical Alexandra Pelosi documentary. (laughs) It's more tightly focused. Uh, The camera is usually in the right place. (laughs) I I love how we've been doing this podcast for so long that you'll just casually invoke the specter of Alexandra Pelosi movies and assume that people know what that means. That is an actual, like Alexandra Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, for people that don't know, is a very established documentary filmmaker. And um, we've watched a number of her. Will Will is, in fact, uh, a budding scholar of her work and I hope writes about it at some point. This is a more cynical movie, or at least a less credulous movie than the typical Alexandra Pelosi film. It goes in with the assumption that the system is broken, and it doesn't exactly end with reassurance that, by golly, what's right about America is enough to make up for what's wrong with America. A lot of time is spent with these three Republicans, one in particular, (laughs) and I guess I appreciated the opportunity to spend that time with them and get a better sense of how they view themselves. I mean, there's not a whole lot there, but the movie keeps it interesting enough as we're getting a whole lot of not a lot there from these three guys. I like this movie for the same reason that I like uh, Get Me Roger Stone, which is I actually like uh, documentary. I mean, God, especially, you know, I'd seen this movie once already, revisiting it after last night's experience with this like Alex Gibney movie, which, you know, I'll just repeat, I really like Alex Gibney, but did not like Agents of Chaos. Movie filled with these like very sinister narration and stuff. And there's basically, I mean, there's no voiceover narration in this movie. And as with Get Me Roger Stone, what I like about it is just that it puts the camera in front of these people and then all the commentary on what they're doing and on the kind of levels of honesty 
honesty that you're getting from them and whatever else. I mean, that's all done through kind of juxtaposing the things they say to the filmmaker's camera to like the things they're doing in public and saying on TV and things like that. And I, I like that. I think there's a something of a trend, you know, it's throughout the culture, but especially you see it in a lot of like political documentary filmmaking these days, a trend which which kind of suggests that like if you put Matt Gates, somebody like Matt Gates in a film, I mean, if you put literally anybody with an R uh, beside their name in a film, you need to be like screaming about the fact that they're evil all the time. And I actually think that it's far more interesting just to see, you know, Matt Gates in operation. I mean, these other two guys, Massey and Buck, these are kind of just like nerdy libertarian guys. I'm, f- I'm familiar with this type of lawmaker. Um, there was a guy, um, you know, God, I can't believe I remember this guy's name, but there was a guy in Canada by the name of Brent Rathgaber. I think in 2014 or 2015 resigned from the Federal Conservative Caucus in Canada. And he was one of these kind of original like Reform Party guys who in the 90s, you know, they were basically like the swamp people they were like i mean they were campaigning all this like gruesome like grotesque revanchist social conservatism as well but their big message and one of the reasons they were able to get so many votes across the country was because they had this like anti-corruption like we're going to reform the system we're going to end patronage kind of message and a lot of that was bullshit but there were a few of these guys that like at least did have enough of a kind of independent streak they you know they never they never got into cabinet you know they never seemed to want to or to expect to and you know this guy rathgaber had some bill you know some stupid bill about like you union disclosure uh, or something and uh, his own party gutted it at committee so then he resigned and he became a prominent critic of the government he sat as an independent mp and you know it's like i don't i don't agree with a guy like brent rathgaber about really anything but um on a certain level given how many just like trained seals are in are in you know elected office these days you know you have to respect any kind of streak of independence and and you know to give them their due Thomas Massey of Kentucky, who is just like, you know, he's like a nerdy libertarian who doesn't believe climate change is real. And yet is nevertheless the greenest member <laughs> yeah. of Congress. Lives in, a, lives in a solar-powered house, says he hates pollution, and it's just like, how can anyone hate CO2? Uh, you know, it's like a it's like a man-made thing, and you know, it's, a, it's, it's you know, plants needed to breathe. How can, how can you hate anything like that? And Ken Buck of Colorado is a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, which I'm sure everyone will remember. He didn't think it was the goal of the Freedom Caucus to ascend a party leadership, but rather to serve as the conscience of the Republican Party. And he believes that the Republican Party has fallen astray of its stated principles of fiscal responsibility and personal accountability. And by the end of the film, he's quite discouraged. The Freedom Caucus is sort of in shambles because its base is so pro-Trump that they can no longer really criticize Trump from the right without the risk of a primary challenge. So, you know, Trump is passing these budgets that Ken Buck thinks are wildly irresponsible, profligate in their spending, but he can't really say anything or rally any of his other former Freedom Caucus Here's the thing about guys like this, and, you know, we're going to talk most about Matt Gates, because this film is mostly a film about Matt Gates, frankly. The thing about libertarian guys like this is that if you just isolate what they say about like the basic day-to-day workings of government and stuff like that, like a lot of it is not wrong. I mean, they I don't share their conclusions. About, I mean, they think like the United States federal government is just like by virtue of being the federal government is this irredeemably corrupt institution. And they think all kinds of like they just think spending of any kind is like corrupt or whatever. But, you know, they're not wrong about certain things. I mean, there's a scene where Thomas Massey has this like he's printed out like a budget that they're supposed to vote on. It's like 3000 pages or something. And he's like it's piled up on his desk. It's just this tower of paper. 
you know, he's not wrong that like the way the lawmaking process actually works a lot of time is like something like this gets tabled. If you're a rank and file member, you probably haven't really had any input in it. You haven't really been there to see how the sausage gets made. Your party whip tells you how to vote. Uh, You got two hours to read this like 3000 page piece of legislation that is allocating trillions of dollars (laughs) and you are supposed to your entire function in a constitutional republic as like a member of the house of representatives is to be a democratic check you're there in the name of representative democracy to you know evaluate this and and have input and and whatever and as he points out rank and file members don't even get access to like there's some kind of you know two or three page primer that only like the leadership gets that actually says what's in the bill but they, they don't even get that. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, if you run afoul of the leadership, you know, you're not going to get on committees. So, you know, he's not wrong that, you know, if you're a member of Congress, you know, especially in, like, just an average member of Congress, and you have, like, even a minor streak of independence, like, this guy votes against his party, like, 25% of the time. That's a pretty high rate of dissent. You know, it's certainly above average, although it's not that high. But, you know, you you get some huge piece of legislation like a budget and your party whip tells you how to vote on it. And then they're like, yeah, you don't need to think about this. Your job is to go and be our piggy bank. Why aren't you off making calls? Why aren't you spending like literally three quarters of your day in front of rich people asking them for money, which you can then funnel back into the party. And if you're ambitious enough and you want to be on like big committees and stuff, pay to get these committee assignments and stuff, which is something else that's detailed in the film. So on the level of like analyzing basic corruption that both parties are deeply involved in but like isn't called corruption because it's perfectly legal and kind of has been the norm since at least the 1990s a lot of the stuff that some of these guys say is uh, is not entirely wrong the hierarchy of power in washington dc is special interest groups leadership rank and file members it's who can raise the money and the special interest groups control the money the lobbyists that's the swamp Members of Congress are expected to pay for their committee assignments. 200,000, 500,000. It becomes a perpetual campaign. Owen Gleiberman had a funny line about him in his Variety review. He said, if you had to describe what his job is, the most accurate thing you may say is that Gates is a congressman who plays a congressman on TV. (laughs) And this is actually pretty close to how Gates describes himself in the film. He more or less states that he believes power comes from uh, generating conflict and also from being able to go on TV frequently. Uh, He loves Trump. He loves having access to him. Trump loves him because Gates is in his late 30s. And I mean, I don't want to say he's photogenic. Perhaps he is compared to certain of his colleagues. You you, you brought up the uh, you, you brought up the Variety review and he had a pretty good description of Gates. He said, Gates is a real piece of work. He's at 38. He's got the baby faced, handsome, but not too dashing smile by committee looks an easy talking facility of a jock bro who was popular in high school and is now a mid-level bank manager, which I think is about right. But there is an incredible scene in this movie where it's like the day of like the Mueller uh, report dropping or something. And, uh, you know, Matt Gates literally has Donald Trump on speed dial and he tries to get through to Trump, I guess, on his cell phone, goes through to the answering machine and he's like, hey, Mr. President, it's your favorite congressman. Today's a great day to be an American. And then he hangs up and he's like, all right, I'll try him at his office. And then you get you get to listen to him like you see him have a conversation 
uh, with Donald Trump and Donald you get Trump- to hear Trump basically <laughs> yeah. on the other yeah. end saying saying you're a beautiful boy you're terrific he's like you're you so, ter- you, you you're look, so handsome you look, you look great in your little suit uh, <laughs> you look beautiful at your piano recital you made you made your mother and I very proud and then Gates is saying like did you did, like did you see I wore the shoes I wore Melania's favorite shoes <laughs> There's a scene at the beginning of the movie where he's he's putting his face on. He's like contouring his face, and he's and he's like, yeah, the most important uh, the most important choice of the day. Which you know, which tie do I wear? He puts on these shoes, and he's like, "Uh, these are Ivanka's favorite. She told me so. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Matt Gates considers himself to be a rebel within the Republican Party because he has uh, such uh, against the grain opinions as he is against lobbying. He is against dark money, allegedly. As I said earlier, he's working with Ro Khanna of California on legislation to limit the president's power to declare war. Needless to say, when it comes to corporate lobbying, he's selective in his outrage. Well, one, one of the things that comes up in this Kana Gates sort of bromance scene is uh, Gates is going through a list of reforms that he supports, which Kana does too. And one of the things he says is independent redistricting commissions. And, you know, I, uh, I just happen to know that there's been a bill about exactly that issue that just went through the House in the form of H.R. 1, which we've talked about now, S. 1, the For the People Act, which among the things it includes, it would create uh, exactly this, an independent redistricting commission to limit gerrymandering or, or eliminate gerrymandering, I should say, in House districts. So I looked up what Matt Gates had said about H.R. 1, and I found my way to his website here. Uh, headline, Representative Gates, H.R. 1 isn't about elections, it's about power. McConnell rejects voter suppression claims. Um, and then, yeah, Gates is quoted as saying, uh, this is, he said this on Hannity. H.R. Uh, 1 isn't about elections, it's about power. Uh, what will the Democrats do with that power? Blah, blah, blah. Then he goes on to talk about how H.R. 1 is cancel culture or something. Um, oh, of course. So, uh, yeah, uh, the the rebel Matt Gates. would you believe when there was actually a comprehensive bill to reform elections, literally just towed the most like generic Republican Party line on this? We also hear him more or less say that exact thing in this movie when he's having a drink with former Congresswoman Katie Hill, uh, who I guess they have a certain a certain friendly rapport together. But they're having a debate and they agree that gerrymandering is bad, but she presses him on why he's not for H.R. 1. And that's indicative of why this documentary is better than most of its ilk, because in a typical documentary like this, you would just see these two people and they would unite over certain platitudes like, uh, well, gosh, we put a damn man on the moon and isn't that <laughs> terrific? And we can really do anything when we put our minds to it. But instead, the movie has a scene like that where they actually debate and she pushes him and he can't really answer. I was disappointed that we didn't get to meet Matt Gates's large adult son in this movie. Uh, he does not make an appearance. Were you aware of this? Uh, no, tell me more. So, so Matt, Matt Gates, which, you know, we should say, obviously, I mean, I'm assuming everybody's know this already. Obviously, Matt Gates was in the news recently, uh, starting in March because of, uh, you know, these allegations that he had a sexual relationship with an underage woman. And then, you know, later, um, I guess in April, it was reported that several sources told CNN, you know, would it astonish you to learn that Gates showed nude photos of women he'd slept with to lawmakers, um, allegedly on the floor of the house, according to this story. 
Anyway, I'm assuming everybody knows that, but I did want to drop that in. But yeah, so Matt Gates uh, has a teenage son who he adopted named Nestor, who is 20 years old. Um, Matt Gates, I think, is only he's th- only 38, so uh, I think I think that qualifies him as a large adult son. Um, he also he also grew up in the Truman Show house. <laughs> And in the documentary, he's, I guess, both saddened and bemused that Jim Carrey later went on to draw a mean portrait of him. One of many not very good paintings that Jim Carrey has done of Republican politicians. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only uh, friendly criticism I have of this movie is that the sort of voice of reason figure, you know, hear from these various politicians and obviously like, you know, Ro Khanna doesn't say anything disagreeable and Barbara Lee also briefly appears and and of course she doesn't say anything disagreeable either but the sort of nonpartisan voice is this Professor Lawrence Lessig, this Harvard professor and you know a lot of what he says is quite uh, is quite correct. He talks about the reforms that Newt Gingrich brought in which essentially turned members of Congress into kind of piggy banks for their parties, created this endless cycle of just, you know, where members of Congress basically exist to be fundraisers a lot of the time, funnel money back into their parties. And, you know, this is a big reason, you know, Newt Gingrich started this. Nancy Pelosi continues it to this day. It's a big reason why, I mean, God, there's there's all this talk about the filibuster and stuff. I mean, rightly, I guess. But I mean, if you want to talk about why, like, nothing good ever seems to come out of Congress, I mean, stuff like this is a really big reason. I mean, I guess during the uh, 2016 and, and 2020 Democratic primaries, this stuff came up a lot courtesy of Bernie, but we just don't hear about it a lot at all. This stuff around the filibuster and various Democratic reforms and, and bipartisanship and, all you know, all these kind of debates, like, oh, we can't come together. And all that stuff is always talked about on the level of like ideas, like as if, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and people like that just have some kind of opposition to this stuff, just based in kind of bad arguments that they have, as opposed to like, I mean, the swamp is real, right? I mean, it's like there was a reason why Donald Trump was able to score points, particularly against Hillary Clinton by using a phrase like drain the swamp. People hate this stuff. People hate the way Congress operates. Um, I have seen, you know, some of the left wing members of Congress like AOC have started to, it was a few weeks ago. Ago that she did an interview, I think, on CNN or perhaps MSNBC, where she was tying Manchin's behavior to organized money. And I think that really is the, the correct way of, uh, of looking at a lot of this stuff. But so, you know, Lawrence Lessig appears uh, throughout this movie, and a lot of the stuff he talks about is quite true, but then inevitably, you know, he has this kind of annoying centrist rhetoric that he applies to everything, where, you know, you see him giving, like, some kind of public lecture where he's saying, you know, we need a democracy that's above party and beyond party. Uh, Nowadays, we're Republicans or Democrats, but the there was a time before that when we were citizens. Yeah, right. So it's like there was a time when all the legislation was cross-partisan. And uh, since Reagan, he says, compromise has, you know, it's taken on this connotation of, of duplicity or something. And I just don't buy this line at all. I mean, a lot of legislation that's passed actually is bipartisan, and that's actually a problem. When people talk about there, there needing to be more bipartisanship as well, what they're talking about a lot of the time is like, you know, yeah, let's have a big bipartisan healthcare reform. And the reason it's bipartisan is because, you only way you can get like Amy Klobuchar, Chris Coons, and Mitt Romney to sign on to something is if it doesn't actually alter the status quo at all, you know, and if it's completely industry friendly. And wow, wow, good for you. You passed that bill. The industry's happy and you get to go out and, you know, you get like a couple of press hits about like, oh, we, we just proved America still works. You know, this is what Biden is trying to do in many ways with the next phase of his infrastructure bill as well. And it's like, who cares? The legislation that comes out of this is not going to solve any problem. You got to overthrow the system. You can't negotiate within it. Problem isn't so much 
much that these people are so rigidly loyal to their own tribe, Republican or Democrat. It's that they're servants of the people who control these tribes. You know, these three congressmen may occasionally chafe against Mitch McConnell, but ultimately they're serving the same oligarchical masters. Well, and Gates is such a, I mean, the other two guys do at least have some basic, you know, they do seem to be sort of rebels in a certain kind of narrow sense. Um, And they do genuinely, I mean, Thomas Massey in particular, whatever his like ridiculous views on climate change and everything else are like he does, he does seem to hate, uh, genuinely hate aspects of the swamp. Matt Gates is such an obvious charlatan. I mean, the idea of like acting as if you're some sort of rebel and then you literally have like the president's cell phone number and you're the guy who... <laughs> You have the president on speed dial and you're literally the guy who like, if any media organization needs a pro-Trump voice on anything, no matter how kind of shameless it is, this is the guy that goes out and speaks in front of the media and is just completely unequivocal in his defense of Donald Trump. I mean, Matt Gates is the swamp. It's not really a criticism of the movie, which I really did enjoy, but I would like to see a version of this film that is kind of more about at people who actually want to drain the swamp. Like, I would love to see a movie where you substitute, you know, these like Freedom Caucus guys for, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe like have Rokana be a central character. But what about like, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and people like that as well? Um, that, or, or what that, that about cool. two heroic podcasters who are constantly <laughs> speaking truth to power week in, week out? Like... Yeah. And it's like, would you believe that Nancy Pelosi hasn't put us on the Ways and Means Committee? Because <laughs> we, we told the special interest to take a hike i mean listen I, I it's a problem that we're canadian i know but this this can be worked around you care about health care the environment you gotta care where the money's coming from madison didn't count on partisanship politics of hate is the most productive technique for fundraising we have you know luke speaking of movies that we've been watching lately Uh, Last night, I I felt I had been watching a lot of trash and schlock lately, so I wanted to check back in with Mr. Cinema himself, Ingmar Bergman. Quite quite the transition. (laughs) So I revisited Cries and Whispers, and uh, I, I have to say I thought it was quite good controversial uh, controversial yeah. thing to say to me yeah I, I mean i know that he's i know that he's your guy one of the most incredible pieces of filmmaking uh, ever made in my opinion you know sometimes we talk on this podcast about how you can oddly derive more comfort maybe not oddly you can derive more comfort from art that is unsparingly bleak yes uh, in, in its worldview And, you know, here's a movie about this dysfunctional family that's going through the death, the agonizing, horrible death of one of its members. And they don't get they they don't come closer together. And the death is depicted unsentimentally as just this agonizing ordeal. And uh, I got to say, I I appreciated that. I appreciated being with those bad feelings and seeing a movie that really tells it like it is about how when the bad times come, they often do not unite people. Yeah, I mean, all the the relationship between the different sisters in that movie, the way it conveys, you know, these deep antagonisms that can go all the way back to childhood. One of the things that I actually really appreciate about a lot of Bergman films like this is how often they feature these very patrician characters. It's like these people are not spared. I mean, these people that live in just sort of like cold, 
old antiseptic comfort or not are not spared any of this stuff because none of that can actually you know cure the soul or protect it from like the vicissitudes of life or whatever have you ever seen autumn sonata yeah a long time ago i I have to admit i don't remember it that well i should revisit that another another bergman film that i think doesn't quite get the respect that it deserves i mean i suppose among bergman heads it it probably does but i mean the ones that everyone talks about you know rightly persona i suppose cries and whispers the seventh seal wild strawberries all transcendentally wonderful films but autumn sonata very much worth your time and another thing i liked about it is the relationship between the dying sister and the maid they have a kind of covert sexual relationship that ends up coming out at the end of the film and the other two sisters are very scandalized by this and i like how this is the one bit of happiness that is available in the awful world of this film is as you're dying of cancer maybe you can get a little bit of relief in this affair with your servant that would never survive under normal circumstances well i'll tell you but i mean this makes me want to watch uh, watch a bergman film again but i'll tell you a film i watched since um you know, the 4th of July is coming up, or in fact, may have even arrived by the time many people are listening to this. I recently watched a film featuring a little actor you may have heard of by the name of Mel Gibson, a film called The Patriot. Have you ever seen oh, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Mel Gibson. Uh, not so much his movies. Uh, <laughs> more and more his political views. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, well, I, I saw The Patriot, believe it or not, in, in school. I think like in, in middle school, I want to say, as part of a history class. You know, classic situation of like a teacher asleep at the wheel being like, ah, put on a fucking movie so i i actually i actually kind of like the patriot although it did have it does have a couple of scenes that are like almost embarrassing to watch with the like (laughs) the the patriotism stuff there's the scene after like you know mel gibson uh the eponymous patriot it turns out (laughs) he said like uh you know fuck it i'm going home you know my son has been killed i can't i can't join you guys at the at the big battle that's coming up you know they're all marching off uh to the front you know through this big field and then uh they see off in the distance could that be a flag waving (laughs) above the you know above above the corn or whatever and it's mel gibson just like riding up to the unit waving this uh flag on a horse and you know there's like swelling music and it's like i think slow motion at one point and it's like yeah an embarrassing scene to watch or later when they're defeating the British, when Cornwallis and his brigands are in full retreat towards Yorktown and Mel Gibson confronts the perfectly evil Jason Isaacs character, it can't just give you this like, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, sort of like catharsis of revenge. There has to be all this like, yeah, flag rippling in the breeze, like all these kind of slow motion cuts and stuff. And yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. But the battle scenes are good and um, young Heath Ledger is, uh, is, is good. Anyway, since we just watched Hamilton for uh, probably one of our most popular Patreon episodes in a while. Yeah, shame on you people, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It it was fun. I mean, it's fun to see like a competently executed sort of film about the American Revolution, even if it was like as kind of dumb in some ways as you'd uh, as you'd expect from a movie starring Mel Gibson. Well, folks, that's two movie recommendations for every conceivable mood. Cries and Whispers and The Patriot. And Hamilton, available on Disney+. Plus. (laughs) <laughs> you want to learn about the Founding Fathers? Now watch this drive. Hey, who left all this garbage on the steps of Congress? I'm not garbage. I'm an amendment to be. Yes, an amendment to be. And I'm hoping that they'll ratify me. There's a lot of 
flag burners who have got too much freedom. I want to make it legal for policemen to beat them cause there's limits to our liberties. At least I hope and pray that there are cause those liberal freaks go too far. We just make a law against flag burning. Because that law would be unconstitutional. But if we change the Constitution... Then we could make all sorts of crazy laws. Now you're catching on. What the hell is this? It's one of those campy 70s throwbacks that appeals to Generation Xers. We need another Vietnam to thin out their ranks a little. What if people say you're not good enough to be in the Constitution? Then I'll crush all opposition to me. And I'll make Ted Kennedy pay. If he fights back, I'll say that he's gay. Good news, Amendment. They ratified you. You're in the U.S. Constitution. Oh, yeah. Doors open, boys. <laughs> <laughs>